Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Ellie and Jared podcast. We have a very special episode for you. This is an episode that I've been anticipating for quite some time now because it deals directly with content creators and the audience of YouTube. Some of you guys have um, watched us for years and other channels like us, and you know, things may change in 2020. And um, I have a very special guest. This is Jeremy from J House Vlogs. We are going to discuss all of this and more. Jeremy, say hello. Thanks so much for having me on, Jared. I'm excited to talk with you and to talk about these things specifically. Oh, yeah. This is um, something that I think a lot of people have mixed feelings about. I guess maybe not even mixed feelings, confused feelings about because not everyone knows exactly what's going on. In fact, Ellie and I did a podcast a few weeks ago um, after YouTube made these announcements with COPPA and how we were like, yeah, I don't think we're going to, I think we're going to be just fine. Um, that was like the feeling that I got. And maybe there's more to it than we think now with a lot of the things that have been going on. So for those who don't know, Jeremy, would you be able to give us a rundown of what happened in September with YouTube and the FTC? Sure. A federal judge executed a stipulated order that was requiring YouTube to make a mechanism for creators to designate whether they were child-directed or not under COPPA. Um, hey, Jeremy, maybe you could explain that like I'm eight. Okay, so there was a settlement agreement entered between YouTube and the FTC that was requiring YouTubers to say whether their content was made for kids and whether they had to fall under the COPPA guidelines. Right, right. Um, yeah, maybe you could explain it like I'm five. <laughs> okay, so basically, <laughs> those who make family-friendly videos are at risk of losing the money they typically get from YouTube. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I get it. That makes sense now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. It's hard because it's complex. And right. It's, you know, you try to break it down simply, but there's so many nuances to this whole issue that it, it can be really hard. And explaining it to a five-year-old may put us at risk of being under top. <laughs> so we might want to stick to the more higher level discussion here. Maybe I shouldn't upload this podcast to YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah. So we mentioned this in the previous podcast, YouTube and the FTC or the FTC came to YouTube and said, you've been collecting data on these minors and that is illegal. And YouTube, you need to make these changes now. And YouTube said, well, we need some time to go through these things. Is that right? Well, so there were uh, advocacy groups who brought a complaint to the FTC and said, hey, we want you to investigate YouTube. And then the FTC filed a complaint. And so there was actually a lawsuit filed against YouTube with all of these claims. And a judge never looked at it, but the two parties, the FTC and Google or YouTube, decided to enter a settlement agreement that resolved it before it had to go to a judge. And so what we're talking about is the settlement that they came to, their settlement agreement, that had certain requirements and fines or, or money that YouTube had to pay as part of the settlement. And that's where people have been hearing the $42,000 fine. 
Right, is from that's, that part of that that's settlement. That's different. So this is the $170 million oh. Oh, that okay. YouTube had to pay. Right, this is and before the, that. Yeah, the $42,000 fine is specifically under COPPA, that that's the maximum fine that violators have to pay for each violation under the law. And that, so we'll get to that in just a second. So now let's hypothetically say that this did go to a judge. What could potentially happen if this d- did or does go to a judge? Could the judge say, you know, put the ban hammer on this, or is there a chance that it would be l- more lenient than what is currently happening b- with the settlement? It's interesting because a case on COPPA like this has never gone to the judge. People always end up settling, and that's part of probably because there is so much potential risk that any party would face. I mean, when you face up to $42,000 per violation, you consider how many violations a judge could find that YouTube committed. There's a huge risk there. And so that's part of the reason that YouTube or any party would say, you know what, I'll just take the settlement route instead of seeing what could happen. Because you can imagine if a judge came in and said, yes, YouTube, you did violate. And we're going to count every video that you should have known was child-directed that you allowed to go on and play personalized ads. We're going to charge you 42000 for each of those. I mean, it could be way, way more than the one point, than the $170 million that YouTube entered into in a settlement. Right. So, I mean, this is just like a statistic for YouTube to, or for just to look at all of this stuff, I mean, there are th- like over 300 hours of YouTube videos uploaded every single minute. And I'm not sure if that's an out of date statistic. No, I think it is. Yeah, more than 500 hours. This is as of May 2019. 500 hours of YouTube uploaded every single minute. I mean, the chances that someone could find something, they would never be able to catch up to find the things that they would be, you know what I mean? Like to, to find a case for that kind of stuff. It would yeah, be going on forever. Most of the problems that YouTube faces is because of just the volume that they're dealing with and the inability to perfectly control that much volume. I mean, it's inevitable that things are going to go wrong and people are going to be doing stupid stuff. And then one of those, you know, few cases becomes a big issue in the news. And then you get Elsa gate or adpocalypse or now this right. with the FTC. It's just, I don't know that it's even possible to fully regulate that much content perfectly. So that's why YouTube is like, we should settle instead of taking this to a judge because it's yeah, just too much. Yeah, I obviously can't speak for YouTube, right. but they definitely said it's going to be in our best interest to pay the $170 million and enter this agreement than what we think is the risk of going all the way through to see what a judge would decide. We want to take a quick second and thank today's sponsor of our podcast, which is Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's what we use right now. So let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Wow. Okay, so we have we have quite a lot to unpack here. There's, uh, I mean... There's fines that we're talking about. There's settlements that we're talking about. The FTC, anytime you deal with the government, it can be kind of scary. Before we dive into that, though, 
Let's talk about why we're even talking to you, Jeremy, about this. You are a YouTube creator and you have been for a very long time under the, the YouTube J House vlogs. Um, tell me about your YouTube channel and how you guys got started. Sure. I mean, for me, I think it always starts back with my VHS camera and my brothers <laughs> when we were making home videos growing up. Like, oh. I just fell in love with the idea of creating videos. And I actually got really big into editing when I was in high school and wanted to be a filmmaker. That was like my dream. That's and so when cool. I was in college, I worked at the motion picture studio and was still pursuing that course. And the more that I learned, though, about the film industry, I saw that I always... I may always feel kind of like a cog in the wheel. And, you know, I didn't know that I would have control as much over the content or the messaging because I really wanted to like change the world for good and, you know, put inspiration out there. But as I saw the industry itself of filmmaking, I, I saw that I didn't know that I was going to be able to really do those things. Mm -hmm. So I decided to get a law degree and I was practicing as an attorney. And it was in 2014 when I saw with my kids, like our first family vlog, you know, this is a genre of documenting your daily life. And the very first one I saw, I went into Kendra and I was like, Kendra, this is something we should do. Mm -hmm. And she was like, no way. You know, Kendra's way more uh, introverted than I am. She's uh -huh. more private and she just was not interested at all. Which is funny and, that you say that yeah, because every time we've that I've talked with Kendra, she's been so good to have a conversation with. Like yeah. she doesn't, she doesn't seem introverted to me at all, but a lot of people would say the same thing about Ellie when she's out and about, she's sometimes is the life of the party. She's having, she's the one dancing on the table, but especially lately she's becoming more and more introverted. And so it's interesting that you say that because I would have never guessed that about Kendra. Yeah. She was not interested in YouTube and, you know, for us, like faith is a big part of our life and we really prayerfully considered it and continued to to look at this as a possibility. And it was after four or five months of me kind of bringing this to Kendra me like, I think we should try this. I think we should do it. You know, because at that time I was spending so much time in the office. I was going in and working um, at the law firm all the time. And I said, you know, what if part of our life was documenting our homeschool experience or documenting time with our kids? And, and that became a full-time career. And we were able to put good into the world, you know, share more goodness and, and, uh, you know, because for us, when we looked at what was on TV for our kids, so much of it was with kids being disrespectful to the parents or whining and complaining or fighting with their siblings. And, and so we thought it would be cool to be able to try to put something out there that showed more respect or learning as a family, you know, some of the more positive things. And so with that, you know, intention, we, we began and that was in 2014, we started the channel and now we're where we are today. You know, I'm no longer practicing as an attorney. We do YouTube full time and, and we'll see what happens from here. So I, I, if you don't mind me asking who or what was the first video that you watched back in 2014 that sparked this? Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, I remember very specifically, it was April 2nd, 2014. Oh, wow. And the girls were wanting to watch an Elsa frozen video. And so we watched the frozen video and then the next video that popped up on YouTube was the good looking parents singing frozen in the car. Oh, and it the, was Sam and the, Nia's video. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sam and Nia. That's so funny. I remember so when that came out, we watched that and then they had a vlog that came up after they did that. Cause they had just started vlogging. And then from there I like found 
the Shaytards and Ellie and Jared and, you know, all the different people, Daily Bumps, you know, a lot of people were starting to do it around that time and we were watching and seeing what was going on. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was the beginning. That takes me back to a time where it felt like, you know, an unbeaten path. You know, like oh, YouTube totally. was like totally undiscovered and it, it had even been out for years at that point. Yep. Like the whole <laughs> the good looking family sings frozen. Wow. It's like, I can't believe that YouTube is already nostalgic, like has a nostalgic feeling for me. Well, I, I'm just imagining you doing headstands at the end of your vlogs because <laughs> that was something you did early yeah. on. I remember when we first found your channel, oh. like you would do headstands at the end of every vlog. And we would see how long we could do it. And like, why, like, why did we do that? But people still ask for them to come back. Like people still ask for them to come back. But it's like, why did we even do that? I think we're like, let's try and do something unique and just, you yeah. know, but I guess it put it, you know, put something there. Do you want to know something that I remember um, about you uh, specifically is in, I, I can't remember what year, maybe it was 2015, 2016. It was the first yeah. CVX live. Maybe yeah. it was the second. Um, it, it was after all of the meetups had happened. We, Ellie and I had a booth. We were absolutely shocked that we had a line in the first place, let alone the length of the line. It was, it was just unbelievable. And we were so humbled and grateful that people would even want to talk to us. Like it just blew us away. And to have other creators come up to us afterwards and want to talk to us blew us away even more. And I remember after everything was all said and done, I think we were taking our posters down. You came up to me and was like, Hey Jared, you know, do you have any advice for like growing a YouTube channel like ours? And you know, I gave my advice at the time was consistent, creative quality content. You know, being consistent was one of the biggest things that you could do to help a YouTube channel. And, um, it's cool to see where we both were at the time and where you guys are now. I mean, your channel is absolutely massive and you guys have done incredible things with it. So, I'm glad my advice worked. (laughs) (laughs) It was you, Jared. No, I mean, you definitely were one of those channels we were looking to and watching and, you know, following along. It it was, it's exciting. It's amazing within this genre because I remember that was one of the things that really caught me off guard. You know, why are millions of people watching other people's home videos? Like people don't even necessarily like to watch their own home videos. Why would they watch somebody else's? But as I began to dive into that and really dissect it, I really thought it was a lot about that relationship. You know, you, you get to know the inside jokes of the family. You start to feel a part of them. And, you know, I mean, it's just there, there's a lot of loneliness out there. And there's a lot of people looking for, I don't know, something to be a part of. And it's amazing how you really start to feel like you're part of the family. And, and that was something we experienced as we started following along the other family bloggers as well. And then how cool is it that we were able to then meet in person and right. start to build relationships beyond that, which is just an amazing part of that, yeah, that's the coolest thing is we've now become friends through this medium, whereas we probably would have never met otherwise. Yep. And, you know, we've had dinner together. We've, we've gone to parties together. Um, like, it's, it's been cool to see. But I, I love the fact that when you talked about your why, like why you wanted to create YouTube videos, and I think that's, if you have a solid foundation of why, like starting with your why, that Simon Sinek you know, Ted talk mm-hmm. like that, that is imperative. And I, and I love the reason that you gave 
And that's ultimately led you, not my advice, your why was the reason why you guys have grown to become what you are, to be that um, that answer for loneliness in so many people's lives. You have become so important to people and a part of their routine. And it's it's very cool to see that and and to to be a part of that in some way. And I feel like that's why all of this is so important for um, what's happening in YouTube right now. This could potentially, you know, make or break, more likely break a lot of people's YouTube channels. In fact, we've already seen some YouTube creators stop making YouTube in anticipation of this. I have a, a couple people that have told me like, we're just done with YouTube. They're not even, you know, shifting their channels. They're just done. And yeah. this, this all can be a scary thing, especially when your intentions are very good and pure and wholesome. Um, so I feel like that's why we wanted to talk about this today is, um, you know, people are, are, are worried. There's, I feel like there's things to be worried about. You know, I don't feel like what Ellie and I said, you know, is, is wrong or bad, but I feel like there's just more information now that we have that we can, can go over and talk about the whole, um, the loss or the settlement and what YouTube is doing to either help or, um, protect themselves when it comes to content creation. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. And, you know, I, I've, I've had the chance to be on a couple um, podcasts on this, like with Daryl and Tim Schmoyer and Benji Travis, and I've had the chance to make some videos. And so if people don't feel that this completely covers stuff, I'd invite you to look at some of those other places as well, because there is just so much to cover. And I feel a lot of pressure and it's, it's, impossible to say like we're going to be able to cover all of it here but i'd love to answer for you jared like some of your most pressing questions of what what you would most like to know about it so we can get that out there because a comprehensive review i don't think is completely possible in this much time right we don't have the law handbook in front of us so we'll i like i love that just going over some specific questions as a content creator myself and for those who are worried about their favorite content creators. Now, I always I always preface this, you know, YouTube always is making changes and always impacts creators and how people view YouTube. I want to make sure that you guys as listeners, you know, give the creators um, some wiggle room, give them a grain of salt to allow them to adapt and make changes to these. Like I said, some people have even just stopped making YouTube videos in general because of the worry that they have with this. So let's, let's give some leniency when you see your favorite YouTube creator make adjustments. Um, But yeah, my questions is something along the lines of we have as creators, some designations that we have to make on our YouTube is this made for kids or is this not made for kids? That seems like a very black and white thing. A lot of people have talked about a mixed audience. You know, a lot of people will watch YouTube channels together. You were watching these guys um, back in 2013, 14, uh, you know, as a family. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about what the, in, you know, what we might get out of a mixed audience designation rather than just, is this for kids or is this not for kids? Yeah. And let me just lay out the framework of why it matters too. So if you designate as made for kids, that means that you lose your personalized ads, which, you know, 
I know for our channel and for a lot of creators, that's your primary revenue source from YouTube. Obviously, creators can make money in diversified ways. You can sell merch, you can do brand deals and other things like that. But your revenue source from YouTube is primarily, um, typically, these personalized ads. So that gets turned off. Your comments get turned off. Notifications get turned off. And there's a lot of unknowns, too, about how that's going to impact your overall viewership. You know, if you have playlists turned off and notifications and comments and all those things, is that going to mean you're also getting less views as a whole, which is going to further impact any of the monetization you can make? And so that's, you know, I've heard some people describe it as the self-destruct button. Like if you click on a video saying, ding, it's made for kids it's like hitting the self-destruct button that you are not going to be able to monetize the way you did. Now, we don't know for sure how that's going to play out. Right now, we're making guesses because it's not until January 1st, 2020, when YouTube said that they're going to put in place all of those things. So there's a lot of unknowns there. Now, if you don't designate as made for kids, it's supposed to be that things continue as normal. You'll still have notifications and comments and you're still going to be able to have personalized ads, which, you know, again, is that primary revenue source. There's so oh, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. No, no, please keep going. Well, so luckily with us, you know, I've had the chance to meet with the FTC now four or five times. I've met with three of the four commissioners and staff attorneys for other commissioners and their, you know, like head, like Kristen Cohen, the attorney who wrote the blog post. She was the first person I met with and, and reached reached out to at the FTC. So I've had chances to sit down and talk with these people, show them my channel, raise my questions, and have these discussions. And that's been happening over these last couple months. And which, I, which I think is perfect because yeah. because you have experience on both sides of this coin. You are a creator, you are a family creator, and you are also a a lawyer or a non-practicing yes. lawyer right now. Um, because, and that, that gives you so much insight to all of this. So I feel like that, that's why I wanted you on the podcast is because you've seen both sides of this coin. You know how both of these work. And if anyone can come to bat for us, I feel like you are one of the best people we have on our team. So, okay. That being said, continue. So it was back in September after I finally decided to read through everything, like read the revised complaint and the stipulated order. I initially reached out to YouTube and was like, hey, there's a bunch of information I'm going to need to know to be able to designate. Because as you read the revised complaint, they're saying channels like Britaily are made for kids channels. And you look at the reasons why they said that was because YouTube had designated their videos that way or emails by YouTube employees claimed that it was made for kids. And that was really concerning to me because you look at the Bertaley videos now, like their last 300 videos, it's documenting the family life of, um, you know, a mother and a father and their two daughters primarily. That's the, the most recent videos. And right. so I was really surprised and concerned when they were saying this entire channel is made for kids. And they were highlighting videos that were really old, like a pillow fight video of when the kids were much younger. And it wasn't a vlog style video. It was just a video of them on the bed having a pillow fight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I was concerned about that and I was asking YouTube that. And I also noticed that the law allowed for a mixed audience exception. And so I immediately was asking YouTube about it. Hey, are you going to make this possible? Because for us to fit within the category of mixed audience, there's certain requirements we have to meet. And what's very difficult is as creators, we don't have control over the platform. You know, that's one of the right. really frustrating things here is that it's a brand new thing. It just happened on September 4th where the FTC is saying YouTubers are 
operators or an online service under Kappa. They had never considered us in that category before. They've never announced that, and it was a first-time application of the law. And one of the really frustrating things about them making that choice is that we don't have control over the operations. YouTube does. And so if we want to comply, like if I wanted to make a notification that was up to snuff for a COPPA, it's not something I even have the controls to do on my channel. If I want to make sure that only people are watching my videos that have designated as 13 and older, I'm not able to do that as a creator. And so I immediately began reaching out to YouTube and saying, hey, are you going to put this in place? Hey, are you going to make that available? And then that was when I was reaching out to the FTC and saying, look, you're, you're creating this liability on us, but we don't have the ability to, to control our own destiny here. We don't have the ability to, to control what's going on. And I was actually one of those creators who did shut down production. We were making a kid's channel at the time, J House Jr. We'd been working on it for a long time. We had already produced several videos. We were getting ready to launch it. And then with the announcement that Made for Kids videos were losing all those things, we just said, you know what, we're, we're not going to go forward with it. There's a lot of risk involved. There's the potential penalties we could face. And, you know, it's going to make more sense for us to do a different route. You know, as creators, there's a lot of different things we can do and a lot of different things we can focus on and put our efforts into. And so if one of those things we find out just lost, in, you know, 60 to 90 percent of its revenue source, that was something that made that a less attractive option. Absolutely. Now, as an operator, we have our hands tied because we don't have control of the operations. Um, is this saying, you know, right now we have the designation, this video is made for kids. This video is not made for kids. We can select between those two when we upload. Are you um, saying that the FTC is saying, yes, you can have a mixed audience. That is part of the law. And YouTube has the ability to say, no, this is the designation that you get. Yeah, I mean, that is accurate. So the FTC and YouTube in the stipulated order made it possible for the mixed audience exception to exist. And the reason we know that is because within the stipulated order, they use the exact same definition for child-directed content as they did in the 2013 amendment of COPPA. And what it says there, there's a third paragraph that says that even if you fall under the factors of child-directed, and they have the list of the different things you have to consider, like the subject matter of a video, is that made for kids or not? Or the visual effects, or the language, or the music, like they have this list of factors that they say you should consider to determine whether or not, not your content is made for kids or not. And they say, even if you fall under those factors, you won't be deemed as child-directed if your content is not primarily targeting children. So if children are a secondary or lesser audience, then you could fall under the mixed audience category. And the mixed audience category has a different set of rules. They say, look, if you're mixed audience, then any of those who come to your videos that have designated as 13 and older – for them, you would be allowed to do personalized ads and have comments and notifications. Now, in YouTube's defense, there are unknowns here for them, and they are seeking clarity from the FTC on these issues. And they have said that you know they're going to be giving their public comment to the FTC coming out here probably next week. And that will give more answers for us of what YouTube is specifically doing. But there's a lot of fair reasons why YouTube would want to be protecting itself and be unsure of whether or not the FTC would even allow for them to make those types of changes the way that YouTube is currently set up. And, and what I mean by that is YouTube currently has an age screen in place. 
And when you go on to create a YouTube account, you have to have a Google account and you have to put in your birthday. And that determines what you can and can't do and what you can and can't see. But one of the things that's been highlighted by the FTC is that parents are allowing children to watch on their accounts or children are lying on their accounts. And so if the age screen isn't appropriate, then you know, a fair concern for YouTube is to say, look, even if we allow for the mixed audience exception, we still may not be covered because the FTC may not count the age screen that we have set up. Right. And so they don't want to go through and create all of this new structure and set it up so that, you know, there's this whole new system to just have the FTC say, no, that doesn't count. And so I think it's fair that YouTube is looking for more clarity from the FTC and guidance but it's really frustrating because as creators, it feels like we're being stuck in the middle of a pointing match where YouTube is maybe blaming the FTC and the FTC is saying, look, YouTube, you can do it. And we're in the middle saying, look, we're about to lose our jobs. Just figure it out already. Exactly. That's, that's how it feels. Yeah. So YouTube is literally trying to protect themselves and their platform. Creators are trying to protect ourselves on their platform and it, it is difficult because, you know, for a channel like ours, I mean, I feel like the Ellie and Jared channel is not a kid's channel with a few exceptions to videos, which I'm, I'm grateful that YouTube gives us the opportunity to designate video specific and not channel yeah. specific. I feel like that's, yeah. that's you know, a win, a, a win for us. But it, it doesn't necessarily matter because I feel like what if... YouTube thinks that a video is not for kids or if they think a video is for kids when we have made the designations that is not for kids, are we then subject to, um, you know, fines at that point? If we say a video is not for kids and under our impression, like, you know, our audience is not, our intended audience is not 13 and under, you know, that that's, that's hard for me to say. And I think maybe more clearly I can say it this way. We have, um, Kids who have lied about their age on, on um, YouTube or anything, or you know, kids are end up watching a specific video a lot more than um, adults do. We have made this video not for kids, but a lot of kids end up watching it. What are the implications there? Are we the ones who are at fault for their decision? You know, that's where it's hard. It, I'm disappointed with the way that the FTC has been treating COPPA. Back in 1998, when it was originally put in place, it had bipartisan support. You know, both Republicans and Democrats came together and they actually met with people in the industry at that time. They met with people who were concerned about constitutional issues like freedom of speech and the advocacy groups. And they came to a conclusion that the primary focus of COPPA should be on putting parents in control of children's personal information online. And then what happened was in 2013, the FTC made amendments and changes, and it really changed the structure to where now parents weren't necessarily in control. I mean, now they were saying where there was going to be a strict liability standard if the FTC deemed that content was made for kids. And even if those creators or the people who had the website weren't collecting personal information of children, if they were allowing some third party, so like in our instance, YouTube, to use the persistent identifier, and that's just like a cookie that follows what people are doing online so that you can do personalized ads, then that's going to be considered enough for you to be strictly liable. And so that's been one of my main complaints. And that's one of the huge things that I'm giving feedback to, to, to the FTC is saying, look, the main purpose was to put parents in control, but now you're removing parents from the process. And ironically, 
you're actually trying to protect the children from parents' own choice. Like research is really clear on this. 81% of parents allow their children under 11 and under to watch YouTube. Okay, oh, so that's yeah. a huge group of people are, are doing that. That's on YouTube main. Yeah, that's that's parents are saying, here, kids, here's my phone, watch YouTube. Yeah. And then based yep. on the algorithm, you know, different videos come up depending on what they click on next. And that's how YouTube works as a whole. I mean, Ellie and I, I'll be the first to admit, there's been a few times where we've been in the car and Calvin or Tommy is screaming and here's some nursery rhymes, you know, like that's yeah. that's it. But we have been very we've made a lot of changes with that. We actually don't let unsupervised YouTube watching happen in our house. And it's been like that for about a year now, um, maybe two years now. We don't let that happen. We have to be present because I feel like that's, that's absolutely what parents should do. We should be monitoring exactly what our kids are watching. But yeah, and, and parents I mean, are guilty. provides YouTube kids. If you don't want the personalized ads and you want it to be a more safe space, or you can get YouTube premium if you don't want to have any of the ads there. And so that's the frustrating thing is YouTube has provided the mechanisms for this to function. And the FTC is just saying, no, that's not good enough. We're going to step in and kind of take over for the parents and just penalize the creators directly if they're making content that is made for kids. And I just, I think that that goes against the entire purpose of the original content of kappa and it's just a, a an unsustainable mechanism i mean now we're stuck trying to define what is and is not child directed mixed audience and general audience and the ftc isn't even able to clarify that i mean they posted a blog post of what is and is not child directed but it wasn't very clear i i give an example that it's kind of like a speed limit sign like if you imagine a law is supposed to be clear where you know what the law is so speed limit signs typically say like okay the rule is 55 miles an hour or 45 miles an hour if you're going above that you're breaking the rules if you're going under it you're fine but in kappa it's like the speed limit sign just says don't go too fast yeah. And we're confused because we're like, well, we don't know what that means. And then we reach out to the FTC and say, hey, can you clarify this for us? And they say, oh, okay. And then they give extreme examples. Like, look, if you're going five miles per hour, that's not going too fast. But if you're going 125 miles per hour, that is going too fast. And it's like, okay, but what about everyone going 40 or 50 or 60? And they're like, oh, and they won't give us any specific. We'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, 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 we have to designate and this could destroy our business and you want us to just not worry about the gray area, but right now we're trying to decide, is my content appealing to a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old? And they're wanting to say, no, 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 look, if it's appealing to a three-year-old, then it's made for kids. But if it's appealing to a 33-year-old, it's for adults. And it's like, but that's not what the law says. We're trying to follow the law here, and it's completely unclear. And I don't know how you could differentiate between content that is appealing to a 12-year-old as compared to appealing to a 13-year-old. And they're just completely ignoring it up to this point. Right, and I feel like that's, I mean, honestly, if I were in the FTC shoes, that would be a very difficult thing to say. This is for 13 and older. This is for 12 and younger. I mean, 12 yeah. and 13, like that. That's, that's a hard thing to say. Now, if I'm hearing correctly, when I was told about um, this initial blog post or the law that the FTC brought up, there were specific channels mentioned. Like you mentioned Bertelli. I yeah. heard that, you know, a channel like Dude Perfect was mentioned as well as being, um, you know, a quote unquote kids channel or kid directed. I mean, 
what are your thoughts on channels like that where it's like it's obviously these guys who are doing fun things but because it's flashy and exciting and it's happy you know what makes that a kid's channel i guess the ftc can't answer that and maybe so we can't either but what are your thoughts on address, that dude perfect but one of the things i'm going to do specifically i'm making a video right now that's going to highlight several videos and just say hey you know you've given us examples on the extremes what about these like 10 videos or 15 videos? Like I'm going to just pick specific videos and say, look, if you had to designate this as general audience, mixed audience or child directed, what would you say? And so one of the videos I am highlighting in that is Dude Perfect. And, and Dude Perfect is an interesting case because listen to this, like their bottle flip video. Right. So bottle flip video two, it's a five minute video of five men playing bottle flip trick shots. That's what they're doing. Five now, adults, 30 yeah. seconds of the video highlights one of their sons who is under 13 and he's doing bottle flipping. Now within the description box, they have links to their smartphone game, which you look at the images of it and it looks pretty child directed. And then they have a book that they sell and you go to the reviews of the book and it's primarily you know, it's the reviews say that this is for my 10 year old. This is for my 10 year old. This is for my 12 year old, you know? So there's evidences. If you have a panda bear as your mascot. So there's all these things that say, look, there's a lot of reasons you could say the subject matter bottle flipping. Is that more child directed or more adult? Now I'm not making the case that dude perfect is child directed or mixed audience or general audience. I'm trying to highlight how confusing it could be and how many factors go into just a simple question of one channel. But you consider all the different types of channels and all the different things and you look at all of the factors, how are you supposed to designate? I mean, clearly children are attracted to Dude Perfect and so does that put them in the mixed audience or are they just general audience because it's not highlighting or featuring children? I mean, there's so many different ways to look at it and that's the problem, right? Yeah. And, and so what I'm saying to the FTC is, look, if you were to take just this one bottle flip video and look at it, and we were to take all five of the commissioners, those are the decision-making people at the FTC, and say, look, we want you to individually rate this one video as general audience, mixed audience, or child-directed, and then let us know what you say. I don't think that they would all pick exactly the same. Right. And if they did, it's like, okay, well, tell us how you came to that. But again, that's talking about one video. Now try to do it with 10 videos. Oh, now try to do it with your, I have over 1,400 videos. We you know? have, so yeah, we have I like have to go through all of those videos. and do this analysis, and it's not an easy thing to do. Well, the first thing that I thought of is like, okay, you're talking about a mascot. You're talking about sports. You're talking about, you know, a small portion where there's kids involved. The first thing that I thought of was baseball. Baseball have mascots, they have the seventh inning stretch, they have like activities and they're all playing sports. Is that child directed? Is that, um, is that mixed or is that general audience? And I know we're not talking about YouTube specific, but if you're applying the same thing, it's like, what would the judge say in that situation or the commissioner say in that situation? I mean, and that's the, that's the question is they're saying, look, it's not that children are your primary audience, your primary target audience, but if your children are one of your intended audience as a secondary audience or a lesser audience, then you are mixed audience. And that's the thing. That's just craziness to say that you would fall into that category because you're a baseball team. I mean, another one of the videos that I'm highlighting is a music video by Taylor Swift. She has a music video called Me. And there have been articles that have claimed that it is tween bait because she has unicorns and animations and the setting is like Mary Poppins. And it's like, look, we know Taylor Swift typically makes music for a general audience, 
But would this video be considered a mixed audience because it seems to be more attracted to the 12 and under audience? Right. And, and Ellen DeGeneres, you know, she has videos where she has like a four-year-old on singing Disney songs. Now, I get that Ellen's TV show is a general audience, but when she puts it on YouTube and it's being featured on YouTube Kids, because all of these videos I'm talking about get millions of views on YouTube Kids. Mm -hmm. You know, Jimmy Fallon has a video with millions of views on YouTube Kids of him singing with Sesame Street using kids' toys as the instruments. So right. I get that to the Tonight Show is obviously a general audience show, but what about that video? And then you get into all the different types. What about animation? What about crafts? What about baking videos? What about vlogs? And again, you get back to Bertelli, right? Bertelli, you go and you watch their last hundred videos, and then you say, look, is Ellie and Jared and J-House vlogs really okay if the FTC has already deemed that Bertelli is child-directed? Right. So it looks like the, the sounds of this is they're taking at least one option away from us or YouTube is by saying this is child directed and this is not child directed. And the gray area is miles long because there's so many different stipulations, but they're not even looking at that. It's, it's a yes or no question for us when there's so many other questions to be asked. And now you mentioned that next week, there will be some more clarification on what YouTube or the FTC is deciding. Yeah, so YouTube will be publishing their public comment. And this came up when the mixed audience became a buzz and people were asking YouTube about it. They sent out a tweet saying, hey, we're going to talk about this complex issue in our comment that they're posting to the FTC coming up next week. And so that's something we can look forward to and say, okay, well, what is at least YouTube saying? Are they claiming that they need more clarity from the FTC? Or what, what is the argument that YouTube is making? And, you know, for me specifically, because I've been able to be connected with people who are attorneys up at YouTube and with the attorneys at the FTC, you know, I'm trying to, to carefully walk this line of making things happen, you know? So one of the things we're doing is we're specifically asking the FTC for an enforcement statement. And what that is, is them coming out and trying to give clarity on a very specific confusing issue. And so we're asking them, and, and this is why I set up my petition. You know, I have a petition that now has over 800,000 signatures, you know, to try to save family-friendly content. And that's what the, one of the main asks we give is, look, we need clarity from the FTC. And so we're going to go to them and say, look, are you going to allow the age screen that YouTube has in place to be sufficient for us to be designated as a mixed audience? If the FTC clarifies that, that opens the way for YouTube to say, okay, our age screen is sufficient and they're much more likely to grant us that designation. Right. And so that empowers us to be able to go to them and say, look, we've got clarity from the FTC. Now you can give us that designation and we can still receive you know, personalized ads and have comments, at least for those people who designate or who self-identify as 13 and older. So I think one of the biggest concerns that creators have is if they designate one thing and they are incorrect and they are subject to a fine up to $42,000. Obviously, you know, we can't speak on a per video, per channel basis, but I mean, gosh, $42,000, that's, that's the COPPA fine. And it's obviously up to, so people may not get exactly $42,000 fines, but that's, that's the number people see. That's the, what people are afraid of. Uh, what about the lay person who's not making YouTube content as a full-time job where they're, they're just like, 
If I make a video and I post it in the wrong thing, I could be liable for $42,000 for something that I just thought it would be fun to make. Yeah, I think the truth is, is I think it's very unlikely for the FTC to be coming after a lay person who's posting videos. I think that it's going to be most likely that the FTC is going to come after big creators who they can try to make a clear example out of and show, look, this is an example where the person misdesignated and we're going to make an example out of them. And so while you could face those you know, penalties and while that is possible, it's kind of like when you're driving on a road and if someone's going five miles over the speed limit, it's less likely that the cop is going to pull you over. But when a red Ferrari drives by going 30 miles over the speed limit, they're the ones who are likely to get the ticket. Why does it have to be a red Ferrari? Why can't it be yeah. like a, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why can't it be like a, it's a Ford minivan. F-150? Yeah. Minivan. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, I feel like that's a lot of creators concern. Is that fine? It's like, crap, I'm, I'm not trying to make a mistake here. It just happened. Like, I feel like my content is good, but you know, not child directed, but Oh, someone else thought it was. And so now I'm subject to that fine. You know, the truth is, is I'm much more concerned about how YouTube is going to be policing the situation because in the past there wasn't a lot of due process meaning they could come in and demonetize our videos or like I got three strikes for sexually inappropriate content back during the apocalypse time. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't much you can do. I mean, as creators, unless you have connections into YouTube, it gets pretty hard. And so if they come in and say, look, we think that you are misdesignating, we're going to turn off personalized ads anyway. Those are the things I'm concerned about. And I'm grateful that we've given that feedback to YouTube. And they've said, look, we're going to give a lot of deference to people on their own designation. And so I'm hoping that YouTube isn't going to come down hard on people when it is in the gray area. Like if Dude Perfect didn't designate as made for kids and they said, look, we're a general audience, you would hope that YouTube would just be like, okay, we're just going to give them the benefit of the doubt because under the stipulated order, it's not our job to police these issues. We just have to give the creators the opportunity to designate. So we're just going to leave them alone. And then even if FTC was going to come after Dude Perfect and say, hey, some of these videos here seem much more specifically directed to children. They would probably get a letter in the mail and get a warning, and then they could decide whether or not they wanted to continue to push the issue before any kind of lawsuit would be filed. Okay. Now, you mentioned that they would be going after more likely, I mean, we never know until it happens, but more likely going after larger creators to make an example out of them. Um we have connections as larger creators. I have a YouTube partner manager that I have a monthly phone call with to go over things. They have suggested, you know, get a lawyer who is proficient in COPPA law. That is the first thing that they always say is like, I can't give you legal advice, get a lawyer. What can the small creator do who doesn't have a YouTube partner manager batting for them or anything like that? Someone who is doing this on their own, someone who's in their basement making videos, trying to grow a YouTube channel, what is something they can do to protect themselves if they are in that, what we call the gray area? I mean, that's the other problem. This is just another example of the volume of YouTube making it so hard to manage it appropriately. Because YouTube is probably going to put in place some kind of appeal process, I would hope, you know, so that if they claim you misdesignate, that you can go through it. But honestly, in my experience in the past, those 
appeal processes aren't very good. I mean, I remember appealing that my content wasn't sexually explicit. And then they said, yeah, we had a manual reviewer go through and they found that it was sexually explicit. It's like, how is that possible? This is a video of just me and my kids. Like there was nothing sexually explicit in it. And, um, you know, one of the things you can do if you are a smaller creator is build relationships as much as you can with people. I remember we got hacked and lost a significant amount of money and we didn't have a partner manager at the time, but we had begun building relationships with other YouTubers and other people. And we began to build that network. And then we were able to connect with people at YouTube because of the friends that we had begun building in the YouTube space. And again, that's a terrible, that, that feels like a very weak position. But for me personally, when I really needed help from YouTube and I wasn't getting any, I was going to do everything I could. And so I was beginning to reach out to the people that I knew that maybe had connections there. And so that was, that ended up fixing it for us. We ended up getting it resolved because of the connections that we had built by going to conferences and, you know, being on the Facebook group pages where you're connecting with people and building those relationships that really can make a significant difference. You get more bees with honey than you do vinegar, right? (laughs) So be friendly to everyone. Okay. Now you mentioned that you have a petition on the FTC uh, website with over 800,000 signatures. Um, You have um, another thing with over 150,000 comments from audience members, creators to the FTC to show that this is a valid issue. The people that are listening, I'm sure are wondering, gosh, what, what can I do as a viewer, as a creator? What can I do to help bring more light to this? What can I do to, you know, anything that I can to make this better for YouTube and their creators and their audience as a whole? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things is you can sign the petition, but sending a public comment to the FTC is probably the biggest thing that we can do. You know, I've had the chance to sit down and actually talk to them and kind of make my case. And not everyone is going to have the opportunity to do that. But your opportunity to do that is in the form of sending a comment and making your case to them. And they have to review all of those comments. And so, you know, the deadline for the comments was going to be October 23rd. And I went in at the time, there was not very many comments. I mean, just a couple thousand at that point. And I said, look, creators need an extension. We need more time so that we can figure out what's going on and have the ability to give you feedback. And they, they granted an extension until December 9th. And so up to December 9th, if you go to the website, you can leave a comment telling your story of what your concerns are, why you think that the law should be changed or different ways that they should enforce it. And I've actually provided talking points that are just bullet points that can kind of help people know what kind of things they can talk about and share specifically about their situation. So if it's okay with you, I'd love everything that we've talked about, every link, all of those things that you've mentioned, if possible, I'd love to have those in, in the show notes, whether it's a link to where you have those or just those bullet points specifically, but also the other links and um, that you've mentioned earlier, I'd love to have those in the show notes um, if possible. Um, I'm also going to try and get this podcast out before December 9th. So it actually makes a difference for those who are Perfect. listening and want and want to do this. Um, your voice matters ultimately when it comes down to this. Our voice matters. That's why we wanted to do this podcast is to shed a little bit more light on what the situation is for us as creators, for um, you, how you as viewers and listeners may be impacted by this. Like we said earlier, people have stopped production on some channels. So, you know, we never know exactly what's going to happen until, sounds like December 9th, 
and January 1st. Hopefully we can push this out a little bit further. Um, but there are a lot of questions that need to be answered that we don't have answers for yet. There's a gray area that I feel like needs to be resolved. And we have amazing people like Jeremy who have the knowledge and capabilities to be doing this. And so Jeremy, thank you so much for being an advocate for us as creators. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to be on this podcast and answering these questions. Um, if well, anyone, go ahead. I really appreciate everyone that has participated. I mean, you know, for the people who did sign the petition and the people who sent public comments, you know, I went in and made my case to the FTC, but it, it really empowers the case when you get hundreds of thousands of people to say, yes, we agree with that too. Or you get, you know, almost over 150,000 comments saying similar things. And so everyone coming together really does make a difference. And so I just appreciate anyone who's willing to participate. Um, like I said, I'll have as much information about this in, in the show notes, um, in the text below, if you're on the computer or your phone, so you guys can make comments, um, sign the petition. If it's, is the petition still uh, able to be signed? Yeah, it'll be available up through forever. I mean, you can go on and continue to do it. And they're going to be reviewing this law for the next couple of years, probably. This isn't like an immediate thing that they're going to just change. And so I'm going to be updating the FTC over this next year of, look, there are people still signing this. It's now up to 1 million. It's now up to 2 million. Like people really care about this issue. So yes, the petition is still available, even though the comments period is closing December 9th. I feel like this is hard because you said that this is something that they're going to be reviewing over the next few years where the impacts of it are going to be felt much sooner. (laughs) And that's why we've asked for a delay of enforcement. We've said, look, if you're going to be changing the rules, you need to delay enforcement and announce that you're not going to be shooting any fish in the barrel, which is how they referred to their policing of creators. Don't do that. Yeah, that was terrible. Yeah, that I mean, that felt like they were attacking us, like as creators. It's like, yeah, we're shooting fish in a barrel. We're going to go after these guys. That that did not sound good. <laughs> no. um, but again, hey, Jeremy, I I really appreciate you taking the time. You've been on on Capitol Hill. You've been everywhere. You've been on YouTube channels. You've been on podcasts. Thank you so much for being an advocate and taking the time. Um, like I said, I'll have all of Jer- uh, Jeremy's information. I almost called you J House, which I guess works too. But I, <laughs> yeah, I'll have works. all of Jeremy's information in the show notes. Um, thank you again, Jeremy, uh, for listening. Um, where else can people find you if there are any more updates? Um, yeah, J House Vlogs is a great place. I have a YouTube channel called J House Law, and that's where I've been posting my COPPA videos. And so you can go there. And then on Twitter, I'm just at J House Vlogs as well. Perfect. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you guys in the next one.